You may be seated. It's awesome to be with you guys this morning. So my name's Tony. I have the privilege of being on pastoral staff here at Wellspring. And I thought on this 4th of July, maybe we could start with like a couple, I don't know, what do you associate? Like, what do you have favorite things on the 4th? Maybe just shout out like if you have a favorite thing about the 4th. Chili dogs. Chili dogs. I like Watermelon, yeah, watermelon's a favorite. Fireworks, okay. Potato salad, particularly Elaine's potato salad, okay. Yes, Josiah. Hot dogs, okay. Others? The, the thing I was thinking about uh, today as we were coming in is like, you know, on this 4th of July, I think sometimes we take for granted the fact that we can come to a church we can crack open a Bible and we can worship God. And the music comes on. Um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, sound team. Um, <laughs> Pre-planned. Um, no, but it, like, that's a pretty big deal, right? Like, but it's this thing we take for granted around the world. Uh, there are so many people who cannot even own a Bible, who cannot gather to worship Jesus without significant persecution. And as I think about today, the 4th of July, independence, right? There's a lot of things that aren't perfect about our country, but it is amazing that we can gather to worship freely. And kids can feel free to go to kids' community. So... If you are a kid and you want to hang out with other kids, feel free to go uh, with the kids sprinting out the door over there. Got to be quick today, man. They're already over there. Sorry. Wait, there are more. There we go. So I remember, does anyone remember the first time they read the Bible? Yeah? So the first time I read the Bible, I was in college. And... It, did anyone read the Bible for the first time as an adult? I'm, am I the only one? A couple of us, okay. Right? When you're an adult and it's the first time you read the Bible, you think, I should start at the beginning. Right? You rock Genesis. You're just like, oh, this is awesome. It's a story. You get into Exodus and you're like, this is awesome. Moses, Pharaoh, God, action, action, action. You get halfway through Exodus and it's like the floor falls out of the Bible. And you're like, law after law after law. And then this thing like the tabernacle. And you know every person who tries to read the Bible this way doesn't say it out loud, but they think to themselves, can I just skip this part? I know I'm not the only one. Some of those laughs are like, yes, it's so true. Okay, so the question is then, why there? Like, why is it even in there? What I find interesting, as modern people, we love the stories, we love the narratives. But that actually might be the opposite way than an ancient person in the Near East would have read the scriptures. Ancient people saw the law and the commandments as the most important part of the Torah to study. The stories were just the narrative ramp to the really juicy part where they gave all their attention. How do we do life? 
tell me the laws, tell me the commandments. So in light of their preference, we're going to spend the next 16 weeks going through every law in Leviticus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I couldn't even, you guys didn't even, not even like one person's like, yeah, right, you know? In fairness, when I was in my 20s, I actually took, like, I think it was about a year and a half, and I went through every major festival and feast of the Old Testament. If you do it, it is really interesting. You'll learn a lot about the rhythms of the people of God, cool stuff, but we're not going to spend the next 16 weeks. But I actually do want to take this morning to go over the last chapter in the book of Exodus, which actually talks about and focuses on the tabernacle. I think it's important for a few reasons. One, this is how the author of Exodus decides to bookend the book. Right? This is how the author decides to end the book. Also, if you read the Torah, just guess how, so five books, first five books of the Bible, how many chapters are sort of about, dedicated to the tabernacle? Just guess. In the whole Torah, how many chapters are dedicated to the tabernacle and its construction? Ten, okay. What else? Come on, seriously. I know you know more numbers than one. Okay. Fifty, you're right. Fifty chapters. That's more than the book of Exodus. That's almost as big as Genesis. Fifty chapters in the Torah are dedicated to the construction or details about the tabernacle. Crazy, right? So we're going to spend one Sunday looking at one of those chapters. There's basically three chunks to Exodus 40. The first chunk, verses 1 through through 15, is about what God wants in the tabernacle. The second chunk, the middle, is about sort of how uh, the Israelites respond to what God wants. And then the third chunk is about what God does at the end of the chapter. All right? I'm going to read, it's a little long, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 15. This is what God wants in the tabernacle. And if you're like me, the first time I read this, I was like, I have no idea what's going on. So if you get lost, just sort of like rezone in. And then we'll go over it again, okay? The Lord spoke to Moses saying, On the first day of the month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put it in put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with a veil. And you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. Who's lost? Oh, some of you are rocking it. You're like, I've done this. Okay. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. And then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. Yep. And you shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and you shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve as a priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them, anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. 
and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. All right? Just so you know, our worship team and staff, we did this all this morning, so you're in good hands. <laughs> now, I remember the first time I read this, I was confused, and then I went to Israel, and I was walking in the desert, and there's this place called Timna, which is a place in the desert in Israel, and they have a replica set up in the desert. And you have this experience of, oh, that's what the tent of meeting, that's what this looks like, and, right? They would do set up and tear down church, right? The cloud moved, they'd set up, you know, the ark or the tent, and they'd deconstruct it, and they moved to the next part, right? And they did this all the time. This is a picture of what I saw when I was there. And it's coming. No? No picture? PJ, picture? Should be a picture? Let's hope for a picture. There we go. So hopefully that gives you some sense. So you walk, you have this like tent around it, right? The first thing you'll notice is what takes place in verse 8 of Exodus 40. There's a screen around the court and it functions kind of like a fence. It creates a barrier for this worship space. Uh, the second thing you'll likely notice is the tent itself, which is sort of on the right-hand side, if you can see it up there. We'll get to the details of that in a minute. Uh, in the front of the tent, do you see that kind of square thing? Kind of looks like a big fire pit. That's where the burnt offerings would have been offered, right? That's verse 6. Now, between uh, the altar and the tent of meeting, do you see, I don't know if you can see this, that little, like, it almost looks like a little fountain, right? So that is, it's not in Exodus 40, but in Exodus 30, there's a description that's more detailed. And this is basically where the priests would wash their hands and their feet. I'm not sure how they did their feet. That's sort of an interesting thing to me. But they'd wash their hands and their feet before offering any sacrifice on the altar or going into the tent of meeting. Okay, now let's talk about the tent itself. So there should be another picture of the tent here. Hopefully you can see this. So on the right is, again, the altar. Then you have the, the washer, washing station. And on the far left, you have two sections to the tent. You have the holy place and the holy of holies. Do you kind of see that? So there's two rooms in the tent. Now I thought maybe we could do a little uh, demo all right, would you mind standing for me real quick? Yeah, perfect. Right, stand. And then can I get someone in like the very back row to stand? This is going to be awkward, sorry. Can someone in the back row stand? All right. And Cliff, can you stand? So it's about 15 by 30. So it's something like this. Imagine those two people in the back row are over more. That's about 15 by 30. So that gives you a visual. I did this this morning. So... Literally out here, okay, you can stand, sit, sorry, they're like so awkward. Okay, I was out here with like the thing trying to, doesn't go 30 feet though, so I'd like do that, anyway. Okay, so that gives you a sense of the physical space of the tent of meeting. There's two chunks. There's the holy place. Now in the holy place, verse 4, it says, there are lamps there which are always kept burning. It's like a perpetual fire there. Uh, in other places in Exodus, we learn that the bread of the presence is also kept there. So there's a table and there's bread that's baked fresh. Uh, I think it's every week. And there's only the priests are allowed to eat this bread. 
So if you fast forward a little bit, David eats it later. Jesus riffs on it in the Gospels. Okay, back to the bread. Now, this space, the holy space, is only accessible by the priests. So only the priests can go in there. The average Hebrew, he's out in the courtyard. She's out in the courtyard. Now, behind the, the holy place is the holy of holies. Now, this is where the priest would go once a year on the Day of Atonement. Right? They kept the Ark of the Covenant there. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, you probably, you know, you're like, I don't really know what that is. But essentially, it's like a, a really decorated box that held some really important things. It held the jar of manna. If you were with us earlier in Exodus, right, when manna happens, God says, hey, save some manna in a jar for the rest of the generation so you know that I provide. There's the jar of manna in there. Aaron's staff, which budded, is in there, which is a sign of Aaron's authority, saying Aaron is a priest for my people. And three, the, the commandments are in there, right? Those stone tablets that Moses etched out overnight, right? Second tempt, because the first ones he broke, right? So you have these three things in the ark. And on top of the ark, and this is important, so just remember it for later. I'm not going to talk about it now. I'll talk about it later. On top of the ark is this thing called the mercy seat, and technically, the mercy seat is where God, sort of if there's like a precise location where God meets its people, it's right on top of the ark. It's called the mercy seat. Make sense? Ish? Okay. Now, in Exodus 40, basically God says, build this, and then anoint, anoint everything with oil. Essentially, every physical thing. So, the table, the tent, everything gets anointed. The people get anointed. They're closed. Everything is anointed. Why? Because God is holy. Which brings us to part two. Set everything up, guys. Right? And this is basically what Moses and the people do in 16 through 33. Now, I'm not going to go through all the details here, but I do want to have a couple high-level observations. The first is this. This is the first real work that God has asked the Israelites to do since he has set them free. And this is important. This happens at the very end of the book of Exodus. How were the people working in chapter 1 of Exodus? They were slaves. So now God, as he's forming this people, he now gives them work in order to re-sort of shape, reframe their identities of wor as workers in his kingdom. Right, as slaves, they never got breaks. But one of the first things that Moses does when they start building the tabernacle in Exodus 35 is he says, hey guys, you guys need to practice the Sabbath as you work. Right, God isn't here just to burn you out. Like, practice the Sabbath as you work. So he's training them as workers as he builds the tabernacle. Also, while they are called to serve Yahweh, right? A few chapters earlier in 32, right? They take their gold and they build this golden calf. Now he asks them as they build the tabernacle to donate things to be able to build this sanctuary for God. And the people are so generous. Moses is like, hey guys, stop giving. Like we have enough, right? Which also mirrors the principle of the manna, right? There is times when you give enough. The people give of themselves to make a space to worship God. Because that's what the tabernacle is all about. Teaching the Israelites who God is and how to worship him. 
Which then brings us to part three, Exodus 40, 34 to 38, which reads, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud settled upon it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Wherever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Now I want to emphasize two points here that I think one is really obvious and the other one might be less so. First, right, the cloud covers the tent of meeting and fills the tabernacle. And from the moment Israel leaves, exit, leaves Egypt, right, the cloud has been there and there's a visible sign of God's presence. And that was sort of the point of the tabernacle, to create a space where God could be. Exodus 25, 8, God says to Moses, have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. We also learn from the narrative, and this is really interesting, Moses could not enter the tent of meeting at this point. Right? Up to this point, it has felt sort of like Moses had a VIP pass. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's me, <laughs> you know? Flashes his card and like he's in. But even here, Moses is not allowed in. At the end of Exodus, I think God is reminding his people that while he is near, he's dwelling with them, it's awesome, he is also holy. He is so holy that everyone can't just rush into the tent. God, I have a question. God, have a... No, no, no. There's boundaries between the presence of God and the people. It's a reminder that access to God, even by Moses, is not something they can take for granted. Oh, God will just be there. Approaching God in his tabernacle is done on God's terms, not theirs. Now, I, I do think it's important here, though, to camp out for a minute, and this might feel like a little bit of a diversion, but I, I think it's actually central to the point of this text, is that often, as 21st century churchgoers, we, like, rock God's nearness. We're like, yes, of course, so intuitive. God is near. Hallelujah. But when we start talking about the holiness of God, we start to get uncomfortable. Because in our culture, holiest is often framed as like the person we don't like and like, oh, they're just holier than thou, right? That's how we often frame holiness. It's the person who is condescending, self-absorbed, and judgmental. Oh, we don't like that person. We like the person who like hangs out with us, super judgment-free. We like that person. We like the God who just dwells with us. He's just present. But the holy God we get uncomfortable. So often, what we do in our discipleship is we downplay holiness because we don't want to come off as holier than thou to other people. But if we really do look at the scriptures, there is a clear call for us to be holy, to be separate, to be different, to be shaped by the way of God and not necessarily the way of the world or our own way. Right, big picture, you see this. Right, we are made by God and called into a relationship with him. We're called to love other people. 
But there's also a conviction in the scriptures that sometimes we have attitudes and behaviors that separate us from God. And so the scriptures repeatedly emphasize that we need to sort of push aside, get rid of, right? Stop doing or embracing those attitudes and behaviors that separate us from God. We should take those seriously. There's a call, the scriptures say, to holiness. We need to let go of the things that keep us from really loving God. That prevent us from being shaped in his image. I think this is sort of on a biblical side, scriptural side, this is a sort of behavioral window into holiness. It's the part of holiness that we have control over. Right, Exodus 40, this is, hey, anoint all the furniture, and if you need to, dive into the vat of oil so that you're fully covered. Right, keep the commands, right? Half this chapter is about God's commands to the people. Take these seriously. I am a holy God. You should be holy like me. Right, that's a window into the behavioral lens into holiness. But there's another way to look at holiness. It's effective. What do I mean by that? Effective. The word means essentially that the holiness of God affects us. It's not just something we do in order to align our life with God. It's something that happens to us when we enter into the holy presence of God. Isaiah 6. Isaiah is a prophet in Israel. He has this vision. He enters into the presence of God, and what does he see? He sees angels singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And he says, right, Wow, cool, I've always wanted to have a vision. No. Not at all. He says this, Woe is me. I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king. He has a vision. You imagine Isaiah falling on his face. I am lost. In that moment, in the presence of a holy God, his awareness of his own sin, his own uncleanness, his own lostness, his own waywardness is awakened within him. He has this moment of awe. The holiness of God is effective. It does something in Isaiah. And it's not like Isaiah the day before was some dude on the street who didn't care about his faith. He was a guy who took seriously his faith. And in the midst of the presence of God, he's like, I'm lost. John Calvin once wrote, the uniform report of sacred scripture is that every human being who ever is exposed to the holiness of God trembles in his presence. And you see this all the time in the scriptures. It's the glory of God. What do I do? I fall on my face. The holiness of God affects us. I remember one time uh, at Wellsprings, it was pre-pandemic, um, 
just during the second worship set. I didn't, I didn't even talk about holiness. I didn't like, but there was this moment when I just felt like this overwhelming need to just get on my knees. And I came up here and I just bowed down. It was just like something awoke. I didn't say anything. A few seconds later, another person comes up. A few seconds later, another person comes up. And in the span of about three minutes, you have this whole line of people on their knees, on their face, before the holy presence of God. No one told them to do it. It was this moment. God was in the room, and they're like, what else am I supposed to do? Like, there's this moment sometimes, and maybe you've felt it, where you're like, I sometimes can just raise my hand and smile and sing and worship, and sometimes God is there and you realize, I am a man of unclean lips, and the only way to respond is to drop to your knees, put your face on the ground, and say, you are the king, and I am not. Think in Exodus 40. God is trying to teach his people as they're on this journey to the promised land that he is present. I am with you, but do not mistake that for me being some just random dude you hang out with. I am also holy. Right through the cloud, he's reminding his people he's been with them. If you think about it, he's been with them from the very beginning. He hears their cries in Exodus, right? The very beginning of Exodus. And he's with his people through the parting of the Red Sea up to Mount Sinai and now to Exodus 40. Now he's with his people in the tent. Right in verses 36 through 40, there's this phrase that God is with Israel throughout all their journeys. Happens in 36 and 38. And this word journey will appear over a hundred times in Numbers and Deuteronomy. That God is with his people as they journey, as they go about life in the wilderness, trying to faithfully respond to God. But the other emphasis in Exodus 40 is not just, right, that God is near, but also that God is holy. Right, he is both holy and present. Right, while he has set Israel free, he hasn't set them free to just do whatever they want. They are set free to serve in Yahweh's kingdom. Right, and here in Exodus 40, they're learning, what does it look like to worship this God that we serve? And when you actually go back into Exodus, this word for serve, right, serving Pharaoh, serve Yahweh, is the same word for worship. Right, they're learning how to serve and worship Yahweh. And part of that is, how do we worship him in this place called the tabernacle? In Exodus 40, by having the people construct the temple, anoint the priest, by having God indwell the tent, but not allowing anyone in, he's setting the stage for the people, what it looks like to worship a present, but also a holy God. He's a God who's kind and gracious, but also one who's meant to be taken seriously. A God whom the angels sing, holy, holy, holy is 
says the Lord. And prophets, devout prophets like Isaiah say, I am a man of unclean lips in his presence. That's Exodus 40. Um, the question is then, so how does this affect us? How does this translate into our lives? How does this impact the people that are not wandering in the wilderness with a set-up, tear-down church? Like, how does this impact us? I think there are two things I want to emphasize, and they're a little different, but I think they all flow out of this text. The first is this, that Exodus 40 is very clearly reminding us that God is both holy and present. But I think that's sort of hard for us. We have a hard time holding those two ideas together. Because when God is present, we think, oh, he's loving, he's kind, you know. Not quite a teddy bear, but like a little closer to that, right? But when we think of him as holy, we think of him as far off. We think of him as distant. We think of him as powerful and big. But what the Exodus narrative tells us is he's both. Simultaneously. And he invites us into that reality. And when we flip to the New Testament, we see that both these things stand out. Right? We don't have a cloud overhead, but the New Testament tells us the Spirit of Christ indwells us. Think about this for a second. Have you ever read the Old Testament? Exodus, Genesis, whatever, and been like, whoa, cool. Moses talked to God. I wish I had been there. Or, whoa, cool, Moses gets to meet God on Mount Sinai. I wish I had stood on Mount Sinai and seen what that looked like. Or, wow, cool, like the tabernacle, God is there in a cloud. I wish I could have been there. Has anyone ever thought that? If only that ever happened to me, right? Right this second, God is closer to you than he ever was to Moses, Abraham, or the people of God as they looked at the ten of meeting. The prophets looked forward to the day that you get to live in when the Holy Spirit indwelled his people. God is closer to you right this moment than he ever was to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. God is near. He's also holy. And this has behavioral and affective implications. Right? We are called to be holy just as God is holy. Right? Just like Israel was. Right? Paul in Romans writes, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. Servants of God. Right? We are set free from sin just like Israel was set free from slavery. And we are called to serve Yahweh just like Israel was called to serve Yahweh. Freedom for us just like for Israel wasn't a free-for-all to do whatever you want. It wasn't a buffet spirituality. You know, this is how we often approach it, I think, in modern contemporary times. What makes sense to you? What feels right to you? What do you like to do? Do that. And while God is not like against our desires and our wants, clearly he has a way that he wants us to live in the kingdom. 
And then when we align with that, we align with the holiness of God. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 7, 1, Beloved, right, not slaves, beloved. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear or awe of God. What's crazy about this verse is Paul, Paul combines both the behavioral and the effective lens into holiness. Cleanse yourself. Right? That's a behavior. Take care of the things that separate you from God. But also in the completion, in the fear or awe of God. From that posture of recognizing that God is utterly holy. There's an alignment between the effective and the behavioral when it comes to holiness in the kingdom, that ultimately and often our desire for holiness flows out of our connection to the holiness of God. All right, so what does this look like in our lives? I, I, I was trying to think of how do we apply this, and I was thinking, I think one way to lean into this, right, on a practical level, is this week, pay attention to two things. One, what are the unholy rhythms of your life? What are the rhythms, patterns, behaviors, attitudes that separate you from God? Pay attention to these. Subdivide it into two more. Sort of, there are things that we do, unholy rhythms, that are acts of commission. And you probably know them as I'm saying this. You're like, oh yeah, I shouldn't be doing that. The other side, though, is acts of omission. Things we should be doing that we're not. And these are equally formative, unholy rhythms that are shaping us into a people that are not holy like God. But it's not because we're doing something particularly bad, but we're not doing what is going to shape us into a holy people. Simple things. Reading the scriptures. Practicing a pattern of rest and renewal. A Sabbath-like experience. But it gets gobbled up in the busyness of life. That is an unholy rhythm that is shaping you into an unholy person. It is separating you from God. Pay attention to the unholy rhythms and then pay attention to the rhythms that are awakening the presence, awareness of the presence of God in your life. Patterns that are awakening you a sense of awe, the holiness of God. And what are those patterns? Unholy patterns and then other patterns in your life that awaken that in you. Oh, I want more of God. What are those? And I always say, what if you just at every day, you know, before bed, you just looked back on your day and said, all right, what happened today that separated me from God? What happened today that drew me into a posture of awe at his presence, his nearness? And just looked at the end of a week and say, oh yeah, this is clearly what I should be working on. Following me? All right. Second thing. Another way I think this applies into our everyday life is really about how the tabernacle and the temple are then theologically applied in the New Testament. It's a little bit headier, but I think it's important. So in Exodus, right, when a person wanted to worship God, 
They would enter that courtyard space, but they couldn't go into the holy place or the holy of holies. And there's this separation, right, that then continues in the temple between God's people and his holy and near presence. Right? There's this separation. God is in the holy of holies. The people are in the courtyard. But this all changes when Jesus is crucified. When you flip forward to the Gospels, it says that Jesus, when he dies on the cross, Matthew 27, 51, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And what the New Testament authors are saying is that when Jesus is crucified, God, right, from top to bottom, it's not like cut up with scissors, from top to bottom, God tears the dividing line between his holy presence and the people. Right? Jesus accomplishes on the cross what none of the sacrifices over the thousands of years leading up to that point were able to accomplish. Right? Jesus becomes both priest and sacrifice on the altar and satisfies the holy will of God. And as a consequence, the author of Hebrews writes, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, the holy place and the holy of holies, holy place by the blood of Jesus, not by our own efforts, not because you're super smart or you read the Bible a lot today or you made it to church every day for five years, by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Right, according to Jewish law, the high priest could only go in to the Holy of Holies once a year. And this atoning sacrifice would cover the people for a year. But Jesus takes the place of both priest and sacrifice and covers his people, covers us forever. It's also interesting when you fast forward in the New Testament. You remember a while ago I said, mercy seat. You remember that moment? And I said, don't forget it. Now it becomes important. The mercy seat is this little part on the top of the ark, which is in the Holy of Holies. In Exodus 25, it says, you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. There I will meet with you. Okay? So to be super precise, when the tabernacle is constructed, there's this little piece on the ark where God says he will meet with his people. Right? Following me so far? When we fast forward to the New Testament, the New Testament authors see Jesus as the meeting place of God and humans, the mercy seat. 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation, you might have read this, or expiation, same word, mercy seat. 1 John 2, 2. He is the mercy seat for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It is because of Jesus, right, that we are allowed into the holy presence of God. He is the place where we meet with God the Father. It is through Jesus that God meets with his people. 
We live in a world that has all these offerings of, hey, if you want to connect with God, do this, do this, do this, do this. And it's overwhelming. You're just like, well, do I go this way? Do I go this way? Well, the scriptures are super clear. The precise meeting place of the human creature and God Almighty is the person of Jesus. In the Gospel of John, John will say, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way to truth and life. He is the mercy seat. And you come in this morning and you're wondering, like, how do I connect to, how do I connect to God? How do I cultivate a spiritual life? This is where it starts. I want to invite the worship team back up. Um, and as I come up, I'd like to invite us to two specific responses. The first is, I just think a lot of us, right? Maybe we've come to church for a bit. Maybe it's our first time in church ever. But there is an invitation in the scriptures that if we want to know God, it starts with Jesus. And I think if you have that desire in you as we enter into worship, you want to know God, you want to cultivate a spiritual life, I'll encourage you. Say to Jesus, yeah, Jesus, I'm in. Teach me your ways. Be the one who connects me to God. It's an invitation as we enter into worship to choose Jesus. And I think that's true for us if it's your first time or if you're just kind of like going through the motions and you're like, yeah, all right, Jesus, I choose you again today. Jesus, I want you to be at the center of all that I do. I also want to invite us. Right, earlier I talked about how uh, holiness is both behavioral and effective. One of the things that's true throughout the scriptures and through history is that also how we sort of posture ourselves in the presence of God can matter. We're embodied creatures. We're not just spirits floating around. And what you see is that when people enter the holy presence of God, what do they do? They kneel. They lay on their face. And I just want to say, and this is not like always normal for us, I want to create some space this morning for us to do worship a little different. Maybe as we enter into some of these songs, we're going to sing in... We're going to riff back to great is thy faithfulness. And there's this line that says, bow in humble adoration. And if you want to humble yourself before God in worship, I want to invite you, maybe you want to kneel today. Maybe we have some space in the back. Maybe you just want to lay on your face as a way of saying, God, before you I prostrate all of who I am. And it can be effective in response to the holiness of God, or it can be saying to God, God, I want to encounter your holiness. God, I want to know your holiness. Do something in me, and I'm putting my body in this position to say, this is embarrassing, but I'm doing it anyway, because you are God. I realize this is kind of weird. It might be awkward for you. But I also think sometimes we get into these comfortable little niches in church like we've done this every Sunday and sometimes we need to do something a little different in order to awaken something in us.
So as we enter in worship, I invite you to respond how you feel led to respond by the Spirit of our holy God. God, we ask that you would draw near, you would convict us of the unholy patterns in our life. God, you would remind us of the ways that we are drawn into your presence, into your holy presence. God, that we might practice your way and not just simply do our own thing. Jesus, we recognize that you are the mercy seat. You are the one who accomplishes for us which we can never do for ourselves. And God, as we enter worship, we just ask that your spirit of holiness would come and fill this place. That we would know that you are a holy and near God. Not the God of our making, but the God of heaven and earth. Thank you, Jesus.